Today is, uh, is uh, we're in the middle of July, and uh, I mean, I'll be preaching to this Sabbath and next Sabbath. And as I was thinking about this, I was, uh, what am I going to be preaching about? I was praying about it, and eventually I decided that I wanted to go back to the stories of Jesus himself. And uh, so there are two sermons today, the first service and the second service. I'll be talking about Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2, the arrival of Jesus, and next Sabbath, we'll be speaking about Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 4. So there are four consecutive sermons over these two Sabbaths. And we're going to be looking again at the start of the ministry of Jesus. What was he teaching? What was he doing? How does it apply to us today? And so as we begin our studies today, I invite you to bow your head with me. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to be with us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege, the freedom we enjoy here in America to worship you. Father, I thank you that Jesus indeed exchanged the glories of heaven for this sorrow earth down here, that he was not afraid to walk the, the dusty lanes of Palestine and to live among an oppressed minority group, to identify with us in the depths of our sin in order that we might receive the promise of eternal life. And Father, as we gather here today as Christians, as disciples of Jesus Christ, I ask that our walk with Jesus will be deepened, our faith will be strengthened, and our witness will burn brighter as a result of reflecting once again on the wonder of who Jesus is. I ask, Lord, that you descend, send your Spirit upon me this morning, that my words indeed will be your words. And Father, for those gathered here physically and for all those watching online, I ask that your Spirit move upon each of our hearts in a way that you know best. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. So I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And um, you want to pray, keep your Bibles open near Mark chapter 1. We're going to be working our way through this chapter this morning. It's a beautiful chapter full of little kind of little uh, paragraphs, little nuggets, beautiful little stories there. And uh, we're going to begin at verse 1, which is always a good place to begin. And it says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I don't know how you are um, when you write letters to people, but um, I always start writing my letters with a standard greeting. So if I'm writing to my wife, I say, Dear Luda, greetings from Berrien Springs. All right, she may live in Berrien Springs, but I always say, greetings from Berrien Springs. Now, why do I do this? Well, it goes back many, many years to when I was in northern Afghanistan, and I used to write to my head office in Adra up in Moscow, and the deal was if I wrote and said, Dear Pastor Pavel, and then I got into the topic, he knew there was something wrong. Maybe I was writing under duress or I'd been kidnapped by the Taliban. But if I said, Dear Pastor Pavel, greeting from Mazar Sharif, he knew that I was okay. And so we all start our letters in certain ways, do we not? When you receive a letter from a lawyer or a solicitor, an attorney, you expect a certain terminology. And Mark is written, um, we believe, in the city of Rome. Mark is John Mark. We believe this is the, the Apostle Peter's testimony. And it is written to Christians, Gentile Christians, living in the heart of the Roman Empire in the city of Rome itself. And so Mark begins with this phrase, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. By, by, drawing, by using the phrase, the beginning, our minds are drawn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The idea here is that in Jesus Christ, God is bringing about a new beginning for fallen humanity. Something new is about to happen. This truly is good news for fallen humanity. But uh, in, the, in the early, uh, the first century, the phrase good news was a loaded term. These days we think that the gospel, the good news, oh, that's a Christian phrase. But when Mark was written, it was a Roman phrase and it had altogether a different meaning. When a Roman emperor came to the throne, it was announced as good news, evangelion, throughout the Roman Empire. When a Roman emperor had his birthday, the, the civic heralds would announce in the cities the Evangelion, the good news of the birthday of the, Rome, uh, the Caesar in Rome. But here we find that it is not Julius Caesar or Augustus Caesar or in the time of Mark, maybe Nero, who is being celebrated. It is Jesus Christ. There is something else that is unique about the way that Mark uses the word good news. In the Roman times, the, the phrase good news is always used in the plural. And even in my Bible here, it says the beginning of the good news, plural, of Jesus Christ. 
But the reality is when, when, when we look at how Mark, Matthew, and Luke actually wrote this word, they used it in the singular. It was never the good news about Jesus Christ, as in one set of good news among other sets of good news. No. The good news of Jesus Christ is that there is one set of good news. There is one gospel. It is not about any earthly ruler or any earthly president, king, prince, or pope. There is one news, and all other news must give way before that. Good news of Jesus Christ, it is singular. It is the good news, and besides which, there is no other good news for humanity today. You might say it another way. The gospel is the only news in town. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And to a Roman audience, people listening to this in the city of Rome, they would have been used to hearing about the good news of Tiberius, the good news of Caligula, the good news of Augustus, the Roman emperors of the time. But now they hear of the good news of Jesus Christ, of who you might say? Of Jesus Christ, not the Roman emperor. No, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. There is a new emperor in town. There is a new ruler has arrived. There is a new final authority in your world. And he represents a challenge to all earthly authorities. He represents a challenge to every earthly president, every earthly congress, every earthly parliament, every prince, king, or principality or ruler. Jesus is coming to replace earthly rulers in the very first verse of this gospel here. If you turn in your Bibles back to Isaiah 52 and verse 7, keep your fingers in Mark 1 because we're going to be dwelling in this passage here today. But turn in your Bibles back to Isaiah chapter 50, 52 and verse 7. <clears throat> and it says there, a very famous passage, is how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This again is a challenge to the authority of the Roman Caesars of their day and a challenge to the authority of the rulers or our employers or the governors here that we live under in the state of Michigan today. Mark is announcing the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the kingdoms of men. Your God reigns, said the prophet Isaiah. It's a direct challenge to the authority of the Caesars and the rulers of this fallen world, all who may claim our allegiance, our worship, and our obedience. There is only one, according to Mark, who is worthy of our allegiance. There is only one who is worthy of our worship, and that is God, for he alone can bring salvation. Then turn to Isaiah 61 and verse 1. Mark is, is full of allusions back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 61 and verse uh, verse 1, very famous passage, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. This is uh, Isaiah speaking. Jesus quotes these verses in Luke 4 in the Nazareth Manifesto. God has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah tells of a time when peace when good news and release from oppression will be showered upon God's people. And for Mark, in, in the beginning of this gospel, the arrival of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, is the beginning of the fulfillment of the good news prophesied by Isaiah centuries before. In the appearance of Jesus of Galilee, a new age has dawned that calls for repentance and faith, as was read for us in our scripture reading this morning. And the content of this good news is not a mystery. Verse 1 says it is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The good news is not about Jesus, but Jesus himself is the good news. It is the person of Jesus Christ, who is both Jesus of Nazareth, who is both the anointed of God, the Messiah or the Christ, and he is also the Son of God. Now, as we go through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, Mark unfolds what it means to be Son of God, and he unfolds what it means to be Messiah. And we're not going to touch on Mark 15 in this mini-series, but in Mark 15, when Jesus dies on Calvary, there is a Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross. And when that Roman centurion looks up to Jesus when he dies, the Roman centurion says, truly, this man was the Son of God. We need to understand why it is so significant. A Roman centurion had sworn allegiance to kill and to die for the earthly Son of God, the Roman emperor, sitting in Rome. 
And here we have at the end of Gospels Mark a Roman soldier who on his arms would have tattooed SPQR. Maybe some of you saw the, the movie Gladiator many years ago. There is a scene in Gladiator where he cuts off his tattoo on his arm. Does anybody remember that scene? He has SPQR tattooed on his arm, the gladiator. He was a former Roman soldier. What does it stand for? It stands uh, Senatus Populus Quae Romanus. It means for Senate people in Rome. They had tattooed onto their bodies their earthly allegiance. And so at the end of Mark's gospel, we find a Roman centurion who kills in the name of the Son of God of Rome. Now he worships the Son of God from heaven himself. The, 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 his loyalties are changed by the appearance of Jesus of Nazareth. Then we turn to come back to Mark 1, verses 2 and 3. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In this passage here, Mark merges three Old Testament verses. Firstly, he's quoting from Exodus 23 and verse 20, where God promises a divine angelic being to go ahead of the people of Israel as they conquer the land of Canaan. He's also quoting here from Malachi 3 and verse 1, which refers to an Elijah figure, an Elijah figure who was to come and announce the arrival of the Messiah and the arrival of God's kingdom on earth. And he was also quoting from Isaiah 40 and verse 3, which in Jewish thinking, it's important to reflect on this. In Jewish thinking, Isaiah 43 doesn't just talk about the arrival of the Messiah, but it talks about the appearance of God himself among his people. So the gospel, therefore, is therefore is not just the appearance of Jesus of Nazareth. It is not just the appearance of Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. This is the inbreaking of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth into human existence. God is now present among his people. God has come to dwell with his people. His name in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is not called Emmanuel here in Mark's Gospel, but the sense is very much the same. God is breaking in to the existence of humanity in a new, uh, in a new way and in a profoundly exciting way. The Gospel, also according to these verses, is not God's emergency backup plan for fallen humanity. This isn't his backup plan Rather, the gospel is the fulfillment of all that God has promised through the Old Testament scriptures. That is, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. God didn't have plan A for humanity, and then when we, went, when we messed up, God has to bring in an emergency backup plan. No, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plans for humanity. He is the fulfillment of his intent for us and the plan of salvation. Now, as we're going to see in this chapter here, and preachers normally talk about things in threes, because people remember things in threes, do they not? If I were to say, there are four points here, nobody remember what four points are. If I were to say, there were two points here, people would go away thinking, oh, I was shortchanged today in church. No. So there are three points here that I want to talk about um, where Jesus has authority. Jesus is coming. He's the Son of God. He is, he is the rival to the, Ro the Roman Son of God, the emperor uh, sitting in there in the palace in, near, near the modern-day Vatican. And uh, Jesus is coming, and he has authority. And the question is, what kind of authority does Jesus have in this chapter? Over what, what areas of life does Jesus have authority? Well, there are three areas where Jesus has authority, and the first is over the demonic. So drop down to verse 12 and verse 13. And it says there, And the Spirit immediately drove him, that is Jesus, into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was with wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. So here we find that the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to test Jesus, to determine whether Jesus will use his divine sonship for his own benefit, or whether he will submit himself to the will of his heavenly Father. Forty days in the wilderness is a long time to go without food. Uh, last March, uh, I, I was in um, a country in Southeast Asia, and um, a colleague of mine said, yeah, I, I just finished a 15-day water fast. And um, I, I thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. And he said, I'm not sure many people can do it, and I'm kind of a competitive character. So I said, well, sure, anybody can do a 15-day water fast. He says, well, go ahead and do it. I said, fine, I'm going to start right now, which isn't the best preparation. I would not recommend it. Uh, the first two days, you feel a bit lightheaded. 
And you know, I was, I was in ta- uh, Cambodia and, ta- and Vietnam. The food is delicious. It was a very painful three days, okay? Thai food, Cambodian food, and Vietnamese food is really delicious. So for the first two days, I felt somewhat um, lightheaded and grumpy. By day three, uh, day three was like I was in the midst of a, a dark pit, and so there was no way out. But day, day four, uh, my mind was sharp and clear, and I'd lost my sense of appetite. I remember day seven, I was sitting in the uh, airport in um, in Ho Chi Minh City, and uh, my colleague had a plate of French fries in front of him, and he was just sort of pushing it in front of me, and uh, I thought I would be tempted and say, no, I, I, it, has, it has no attraction for me. By 10, day 10, I was feeling weak, and um, I was, by about day 12, I was starting to hallucinate about food again. By day 14, um, I was dreaming about what my first meal would be, and I was thinking it's going to be burger and fries. No, I can't do that. I'm in Cambodia. They don't sell that here. Okay, rice. I'm not too keen on that. It's just going to bung me up, this white rice. What am I going to eat for my 15th day? And so I decided, okay, I will wait until I get home. So I flew home on United, uh, all the way from, from, uh, from Southeast Asia. There was very nice food on United, but I pushed it to one side. I wasn't going to touch it. And I got home, and my wife had my favorite meal for me. I said, you know, I've just gone 15 days with no food. You know, um, the most I can eat is a bit of gruel. Um, just, just, just give me some light vegetable soup or something. And so for my first meal, I had this uh, a, a very small bowl of very light vegetable soup, and it kind of ignited a raging fire in me. And for the next 24 hours, all I did was eat. And um, I can tell you that 15 days is a tough time to go without food, just on water. I lost about a pound a day, so it wasn't such a bad thing. But it's hard to do 15 days. 40 days, though, that's quite a test. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. And um, Elijah was 40 days on Mount Horeb, we find there in 1 Kings 19, verse 8, when he was fleeing from Jezebel. In each case, the wilderness was a testing ground, a proving ground. Was this person going to rely on the promises of God, or are they going to rely on their earthly strength? I'm not recommending we do 40 days of fasting today, but there is benefit in having a wilderness experience. Sometimes we sense that our lives are stuck in a wilderness, that our lives are on pause, that I want to do something great for God, but I'm here treading water doing something else. It may well be that God is testing us in our faithfulness in what we consider the smaller things of life, so he knows that he can trust us with greater responsibilities. David himself was many years in the wilderness as a vagabond before he was entrusted with the kingship of Israel. He had to be a physical shepherd of God's of sheep, which are smelly, dumb creatures, for he could be entrusted as the shepherd of God's people. Uh, Moses and Elijah also had their wilderness experiences. Being in the wilderness is not a sign that God has abandoned you. It is a sign that God is testing you. He's proving your faith. He's proving your fidelity to him. He's asking, is this person truly resting on my promises, or are they looking for quick earthly fixes? And it says in the passage here, in verse 13, that Jesus was tempted by Satan. Now, Mark does not use the word devil, diabolos, a general, generic term, but he uses the word Satan, satanos. Mark is emphasizing that our struggle with evil is against a personal malevolent, malevolent enemy. Evil is out there. We understand that. You know, having a road accident, as you might say, is an expression of evil. But beyond that, there is a real malevolent being called Satan, whose desire is to destroy not just the followers of Jesus, but Jesus himself. And in this passage here, Jesus overcomes the temptations of Satan. It's interesting to reflect the world in which we live today. Um, Spiritual warfare is not so much a test of power, it's a test of truth. Satan is the father of lies. Every temptation is ultimately a lie. It's not a test of power. Every temptation is a lie. When Satan says, if you do this, it will be better for you, you'll be happier, you'll be stronger, you'll be wealthier, whatever the case may be, every temptation is based upon a lie. And the reality is that you, re- you respond to the lies of Satan with the truth of Scripture. This is what Jesus did in the temptation in the wilderness, back there in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 4. We're now living in a world that says there is no such thing as absolute truth. We're familiar with this. I won't delve much into that today, but think about the implications. If there is no such thing as absolute truth, then there is no such thing as absolute falsehood. Is that right? 
If, no th if nothing is absolutely true, then you cannot say that something is absolutely false. And therefore, every temptation of Satan cannot be considered a lie, rather it becomes your truth. And so following the temptations of Satan becomes what Oprah Winfrey might call, it, that is your truth. And what Satan whispers into your heart, because you've abandoned the concept of truth as an absolute reality, therefore you are prey to the lies of Satan, because you no longer believe philosophically in the possibility of something being a lie. And so Jesus, however, overcame Satan with the truth of Scripture, and we are likewise invited to overcome Satan, not in our own strength, but through relying on the truths of the Word of God. And when we're not sure how to respond to Satan's temptations, we are called, as did Jesus, to respond by quoting Scripture and aligning our lives with the principles that we find in the Word of God. This expression here, he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited upon him. Well, to those first century Christians in Rome facing persecution from Nero and Caligula and so forth, this was a very comforting passage. The idea that Jesus himself had been with wild animals and angels had ministered to him in the midst of his distress. This was an incredible comfort and encouragement to the Christians of Rome who themselves were being put in the arena with the wild animals. Then if you turn to uh, verse 21, having, having overcome Satan, Jesus can now um, set free Satan's victims. Mark 1 verse 21, it says, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue, and he taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus? of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Here we find the story where Jesus begins to exert his authority over the victims of satanic oppression. Satan is real, his demons are real, and his oppression is real. Many Christians experience harassment from Satan. We say, oh, how can that be so? But look at the text behind me on the wall. It says, they keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. What does the first half of that verse say? Satan was wrath with the woman and went off to make peace with the remnant of her children. Is that what the text says? No. Satan makes war with God's children. The very moment you say, I am loyal to Jesus Christ, you become a target for Satan's attacks. And so Jesus goes around setting free and liberating the victims of Satan's attacks. Notice where this occurs. It occurs in the synagogue on a Sabbath morning. This is a guy who has not been disfellowshipped. He is assumed to be a worshiper in good and regular standing. He's sitting in the synagogue. He's singing the hymns of praise. He's returning his tithes and his offerings. He listens to the exposition of the Torah, Sabbath after Sabbath, and he's experiencing demonization. People say, oh, that cannot be happen in an Adventist church. They say, oh, yes, it can. Just look at the example from Scripture. There may be people sitting within these four walls or watching online who are experiencing demonic harassment. This demon can sit in the presence of Jesus Christ and not be, not be too troubled about it. We say that's a strange thing, but it's absolutely true based on this text. It's only as Jesus is speaking, the Spirit cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, the first to recognize the divinity of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, the first being is a demon. They know who Jesus is. The demons indeed tremble. Uh, James tells us later on in the, gospel, in the epistle of James that the demons believe in God and they tremble. The demons know that their time is short. Satan is, has great wrath or anger because he knows that his time is short. If you want to know a great student of prophecy, it's Satan because he knows that his end is sure. So here we have this demon crying out and Jesus rebukes the demon and casts him out of this poor man. This man cannot help himself, but when Jesus, the anointed of God, comes into contact with an unclean spirit, there is no contest. Satan was already defeated in the wilderness, and because Jesus has defeated Satan in the wilderness, he can go throughout his ministry, setting free the victims of satanic oppression. The demon speaks in the singular, 
but he refers to plural demonic forces. This is a man in the grip of multiple demonic forms of demonic oppression and possession. And the question from the demon implies that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan have nothing to do with one another. We need to take this seriously, brothers and sisters. There is no place for cherished sin or private sin in our lives. We're going to see in the story of the paralytic in our second service, there is nothing so distinctive about an individual as their sins. Now, everybody here is dressed differently. We're slightly distinctive. You know, we like to dress, some people like to dress with flair. Some people like to have a certain fashion statement, whatever the case may be. And we look at distinctiveness on the outside, but God knows the inside. He knows that there is nothing so unique about me as the, as the, 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 um, the matrix of sin within my own life. And here we have, we see in this passage here that there is no agreement, there is no overlap, there is no compatibility between the kingdom of God and the principality of Satan. The demon recognizes the divinity of Jesus and is cast out. And Jesus does not charge this man money for this ministry, rather he restores him to his community and to his family. This is the first form of authority that Jesus has. In in Mark chapter 1, he does something that only God can do. He casts out demons. And we find if you ever deal with demons that they don't care who you are, they don't care about your education, they don't care about where you studied, what you did or did not study, they don't care about your musical abilities or your preaching gifts or or the the compassion you show as a deacon or a deaconess. No, the only thing that the demons are afraid of is the name of Jesus Christ. There is power in the name of Jesus Christ. But there is another form of authority that Jesus exhibits in this chapter, and that's authority over disease. We pick that up in verse 29. And it says there, as soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house with Simon and Andrew, with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. Um, Apparently, Simon didn't tell Jesus about his mother-in-law, but the others did. I kind of wonder what kind of relationship there was there. He came and took her by the hand and uh, lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So just as Jesus sets a man free from a demon, a demon makes life intolerable for those who are alive, Jesus also has authority over disease, and disease is more problematic because disease actually takes life. Jesus has two forms of authority over demons and over disease, and he heals people. And when you look through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic gospels, you see that there are three levels of disease. Um, There is physical ailments, and Jesus cures them. The Greek verb is therapeuein. We get the word therapy from that. Jesus cures physical ailments. We also see in these three gospels that Jesus cures social ailments. You might say working for reconciliation when there's a divide in a family or divide within a congregation. Jesus works for social healing as well as physical healing. But there is another kind of healing that Jesus performs, and we find that at the end of this chapter. In verse 40, it says there that a leper came to Jesus begging him and kneeling. He said to him, if you choose, you can make me clean. Now notice the, be- the leper does not ask for healing because his is a disease unto death like sin. The leper does not ask for healing. He asks to be cleansed. It is altogether a much deeper experience that the leper is asking for. He doesn't want just to be healed of a fever like Simon Peter's mother-in-law. He asks for cleansing because he is sick. He is sick unto death. Lepers in those days, uh, it was a fearful disease to have. If we know, maybe some of us know, maybe some of us are unaware of this. If you were a leper, you were cast out from your family. You were cast out from your home. You were cast out from your community. You were forced to wear a face covering because uh, just as we, with COVID today, as, as the leprosy ate into your face, your face would be horribly disfigured. You would be forced to live in a leper colony, maybe down in, in the Jordan Valley or down in the wilderness of Sin, south of Judea, in the desert. Nobody wanted to be around you as a leper. If you were a leper, you had to keep 50 paces from from everybody else. You had to carry a little bell saying unclean, unclean, so people wouldn't run into you by mistake. We talk about social distancing today. We know nothing about social distancing compared with this leper. This leper knew all about social distancing. He was waiting simply to die. He was existing knowing that the leprosy was eating his fingers, eating his toes, eating his face away, and he would die a horrible, painful death. And yet when this leper sees Jesus, 
he runs and he falls at the feet of Jesus. There's no social distancing when it comes to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, if you choose, you can make me clean. See this profound faith from a man whom society had rejected? A man living under the curse of God, as the Pharisees would say, because he was sick, therefore he must be a sinner. We'll see that in Mark chapter 2, that idea very strongly. Yet this man has a profound faith in Jesus. If you choose, he doesn't say you can make me better. He says, if you choose, you can cleanse me. You can fill my deepest need for inner cleansing. His faith reveals that he does not doubt Jesus' ability to heal. The only thing he questions is the willingness of Jesus to cleanse the sin-sick soul. And Jesus does not react with horror to this leper. He does not flee to a safe location. He doesn't say, ah, wait a minute, social distancing requirements. Put that mask back on and stand 50 yards back from me. He doesn't say anything of the sort. It says there in the text, he says, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus did not touch the leper after healing him. He didn't touch the leper as a, the leper as a celebratory hug, um, having healed him. Jesus touched the leper before he healed him. And it was Jesus didn't touch him in this passage here in order to cleanse him. That comes later in the, in, the, in, the, in the story here. Jesus reaches out and he touches that leper as he is. The human touch is a sign of acceptance, is it not? In touching this leper, Jesus showed his identification with all lepers, physical lepers, moral lepers, spiritual lepers, those today may be caught up in a web of physical illness, a web of financial bankruptcy, despair, hopelessness, and fear. Jesus showed that he came to show compassion to those whom the world has turned its back on. Maybe you know somebody today whom the world has turned its back on, and if you're going to be in a follower of Jesus, then I would challenge you today to reach out and show compassion to that person today. Reach out and touch them, maybe physically, maybe emotionally, maybe go for a walk with them, maybe sit and hold their hand in a hospital bed. Whatever it is, reach out and show compassion to those whom our world has rejected. Be the living presence of Jesus as Jesus himself was for this leper. The physical touch of Jesus to that leper was quite possibly the first touch he'd experienced in many a long, many a long year. And what would it have done? It would have brought encouragement. It would have brought hope. It was a touch of love and sympathy. And I can tell you, when you go through hard times, you don't want people to condemn you. You want someone to put their arm around you and to encourage you. Jesus affirms that he is willing to cleanse a leper. He says, I do choose. I want humanity to be cleansed of its sickness unto death. This man had leprosy. We suffer from the sin disease. I do choose, says Jesus, be made clean. And the man is cleaned. Jesus then commands the restored leper to go to the priests to show himself to them as Moses had laid out in the law of Moses. And he was to go to the priests of Jerusalem and not to tell anybody on the way. And he was to show his body to the priests and they would examine his body. And if, if, he, if he was truly healed, they would pronounce him clean and he could be reintegrated into public society. But Jesus already knows the jealousy and the hatred of the religious leaders. And he doesn't want this guy to tell anybody because if, if the religious leaders get to know that this guy was healed by Jesus, then they're going to say, oh, no, 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 this man truly is not healed. They're going to deny the miracle and keep the man living with a leper colony. And so Jesus says, go and show yourself straight to the priests because they need to give a social confirmation that you've been cleansed. But the man does not do this. It says in verse 45, he went out and began to proclaim what Jesus had done freely and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country and people came to him from every quarter. The man disobeys Jesus. He doesn't go to the priests and he goes and tells everybody what Jesus has done for him. It's an incredible thing. And the other thing he does is he says there, he began to spread the word. And if you take the time to go through the Gospel of Mark, the word isn't just like you know, the written word. The word is, is shorthand for the good news. He, begins to he begins to tell the good news about Jesus Christ, this healed leper who was sick unto death, who has now been given a new lease of life at the touch of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting as you look at this story here that you have a sense of what's going to happen for all of us as we suffer from this disease unto death, because at the start of this little paragraph, Jesus can live in the community, and the guy is forced to live out in the countryside on his own. But the story tells us explicitly that when Jesus cleansed the leper, now the leper can go and live with community, 
And Jesus is forced to go and live out in the countryside. See, Jesus doesn't just cleanse the leper, but he trades place with the leper. He bears that leper's burdens. This is like a, a foretaste of what we find later in the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus not only, um, not only cleanses us from sin, but he bears our burdens as well. He is the sin-bearing sin-bearer. Sin he is the sin-burden sin-bearer. And so in this little story of, of the, the leper, we see a picture of what Jesus does for each one of us. He not only heals us, not only cleanses us, but he trades places with us, and he bears our burdens just as he bore this leper's burdens himself. Then we come to the final authority that Jesus exhibits in this opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and that's authority over disciples. We find that in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. So turn there in your Bible. It's just going to read just a few verses here. It's a very famous passage. It says there, as Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, or fish for people, my version says. I think the King James is fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and they followed Jesus. Uh, these guys were not um, subsistence fishermen. Uh, first of all, we see that they have multiple boats. We have, they have hired men. And we know from, his, from historical sources that Galilee was a major source of dried fish for Jerusalem. They had a, buzz, uh, a, a burgeoning export business of dried fish from Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. This was a, a viable commercial enterprise. And they were the business owners. They were not the hired hands. Zebedee was the father. James and John were his sons. They were going to inherit the family business, but they had hired hands working for them, probably on a daily rate. So these are people with a certain socioeconomic status. They're not just fishermen fishing for their daily um, fish so that they can survive in terms of food. But Jesus calls them, and it says they followed him immediately. Now, what do we learn about this call of Jesus? Firstly, it was a call to follow Jesus personally. Jesus did not say to them, follow the Torah. Rabbis in the time of Jesus would invite people to follow the Torah, and they would expound upon the Torah. Jesus does not say to them, follow the Torah, and I will teach you how to do it. He says, follow me. Jesus calls us to follow him personally. He doesn't say to us, follow the 28 fundamental beliefs, true though they may be. He doesn't say, follow and obey the church manual, which is a, a good delineation of how church really can be structured, so there's an orderly, orderly, order and godliness there. Jesus calls us to follow him as a person, as a living person. He's inviting us into a one-on-one -on -one connection that is unique to each one of us. The rabbis called people to follow the Torah, but Jesus calls us to follow him personally. Secondly, no potential disciple needs to take an exam in theology or pass the seminary exams before they can become a disciple. Jesus calls people where they are. He called these fishermen by their fishing nets. Discipleship does not begin in the seminary, but it begins in the office, in the farm, in the workshop, in the, in the body shop. It begins at the kitchen sink. It begins in the classroom and the living room. And everything a disciple needs to learn and can do can only be learned as we follow Jesus in personal obedience. Faith must be an act of obedience before it is a content of belief. Before the disciples really understood what they were doing, they were already following Jesus in obedience. Faith is a verb before it is a noun. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, yes? Which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever has faith in him. Is that what it says? No. We think that's what it says. That's not what Jesus says. It's not whoever has faith in him. Faith is a noun, like intellectual assent to various doctrines. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that whosoever believes in him, believes is a verb. It's not a noun. Jesus doesn't say that whoever has faith in me that believes I am the Son of God will be saved. No. Jesus says whoever puts into practice their faith in me, that you live your faith that, that, that a saving faith is a living faith. It's a working faith. It's a faith that works through the realities of day-to-day -day life. A saving faith is one that is expressed in the decisions we make, in the words we share, in the places we go, and all aspects of our lives. Faith is a verb before it is a noun. Only as Jesus is followed can he be known. 
If I follow in obedience, my faith grows. If I do not follow in obedience, my faith cannot grow. Jesus also, we see in this passage, he wants to transform our lives so that we are not just fishers of, of fish, but we are fishers of people. Every evening, those guys go out to fish on the Sea of Galilee in order that they might be, buy bread the next morning to feed their families. They worked day to day and week to week and month to month in order that they might live. They might live day to day, week to week, and month to month. But Jesus promises to transform his disciples into fishers of men, that they might work not just to live day to day, but that we might work for eternity and for an eternal reward. Now, this is important for us today. Why? Because Jesus recognizes that the cry of the human heart is for meaning, for purpose, for a greater truth that we can live by. Now, we may limp along for a, lie, a while in our Western lives. We extract small installments of happiness and meaning from the stages of life. We may finish high school. We may uh, learn a trade or go to college. We may get a job. We may get married. We may start a family. We may end up paying off our home. These are small installments of happiness that come along life's journey, and all other things being equal. But they don't answer the cry of the human heart for purpose. There is something more. And as young people may be, young people's eyes may be fixed on the notion of, I've got to finish my education, I've got to get a skill, I've got to get a job, I've got to find that, that, that special other person, I want to start a family, etc., etc., etc. But then they discover and then when they hit a certain point of life that something's still missing. And Jesus recognizes this. There is more to life than the material. As Augustine said, and I hate to quote Augustine, but what he said is absolutely true, our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. Yet as Christians today, we often live in two worlds. Western society tells us that you can believe whatever you want within the four walls of your church. You can sing whatever you want. You can pray however you want. You may believe or preach whatever you want, but the moment you leave those doors, you put that Christianity on the back burner, and now you're in a secular world. And you have to abide by the values of a secular world out there while you have a Christian world within these four walls or within the four walls of your own home. And so for generations, we as Christians, we find ourselves living in a world where we're kind of pressured into having a privatized faith, but a public life in the secular realm. Where did this idea come from? Well, uh, let's go back into some Greek philosophy. There was a guy once called Plato, and he taught that everything is composed of matter and form. Let me give you an example. The ingredients of bread, though that's the matter, but it takes intelligence to turn the ingredients into the form that is the loaf of bread. You may have a chunk of marble from a quarry, that's the matter, but it takes a Michelangelo-like mind to turn that into a statue of David or the Venus de Milo. So you have matter, which is considered raw and chaotic and somehow bad. Then you have form, where, where you have meaning and purpose and intelligence. And so when, when Plato was giving his, his thinking all those centuries ago, the idea came that matter is disordered and chaotic, form is rational, good, and the bringing of harmony to creation. And so then the idea developed that matter, or the physical side of life, is inherently deficient or even evil, and the spiritual side of life is much better, is much more important. And this worked its way through into the Middle Ages, in, mid, in, mid, in, the, in the Dark Ages, with, with uh, the philosophy of the monks. Uh, after Augustine, we have this dualistic idea that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. Therefore, if you're a butcher, baker, or candlestick maker, you don't have a vocation. That's a temporal job. But the spiritual elites, they become monks, priests, and nuns. And you lock yourself into a cloister or into a monastery. And so we have this, 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 this twin-track Christianity develop where the elites become priests, pastors, uh, nuns, and, and monks, and, and everybody else just has to kind of get along doing regular daily chores. And so Augustine uh, embraced the idea of asceticism, assuming that the physical life and bodily functions were inferior. Monasteries were to be preferred over workshops. Prayer and meditation were to be preferred over being a seamstress, electrician, or carpenter and uh, marriage was considered inferior to celibacy. But thank God in the Reformation, we didn't just learn about righteousness by faith. The Reformers rebelled against this two-tier idea of spiritual life, and they affirmed the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, which when they talked about it had nothing to do with the ordination of women. They were talking about the rejection of monasticism. They were saying that, as, as Martin Luther said, you can be a, have a vocation as a merchant, a farm maker, a homemaker, or a weaver. 
You do not have to be a monk, priest, or nun to have a vocation from God. Rather, God says God calls all of us to be his representatives in whatever sphere of life he has called us to be. And this is important because running a business or a household is not inferior to being a priest, pastor, or a nun, because all are ways of fulfilling the creation commission that is to participate in God's work of maintaining and blessing his original creation. And so Jesus affirms in this passage here that disciples can live for him in the everyday realities of daily life. It doesn't really matter if you're a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, pastor, or seminary professor. We are all called and we all have gifts, and God asks us to use those gifts in the sphere of life where he has called us to save, to serve. We as a, even in our Western church, we've idealized the experience of these four. And what we say is, well, they had a business, and they left their business, and they went, and they went to seminary three years with Jesus, and then they were full-time apostles. We've idealized that. So these days when somebody says, I want to enter the ministry, the idea is you've got to leave your job, go to the seminary, and then you can become a full-time pastor. Well, that is true about these four, but the most successful minister of the gospel in the New Testament was Paul. And he did not abandon his job as a tent maker in order to become an apostle. Paul used his skills as a tent maker to work in the marketplace where he could gain access to the marketplace of ideas and the marketplace of discussion. That's where people were actually spending their days in the market. And the gospel spread through whichever city Paul set up business as a tent maker. In this passage here, Jesus is calling us to, to rethink how we view our lives. We are all engaged in a vocation from God. Whether we are an airline pilot, whether we are a homemaker, whether we are an accountant, a professor, a farmer, whether we run a welding shop or an electrician or carpenter, we are all called to be the light of the world in whichever portion of the vineyard God has placed us. Our jobs are not separate from our vocation from God. God is calling us to be his representatives in our sphere of influence. And if everybody were in the seminary or if everybody were in the pulpit, how will the farmer or the man in the, in the animal market or um, in, in the corn exchange ever hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We are all called to be um, tent makers for Jesus Christ. These four, they left Jesus and they followed him. But as we go through the gospels, we find that Jesus commissions people to be his representatives and not to change their profession, but to live for him. And not to say, in church I'm a Christian, but outside of church I'm going to bow to a secular world. No, I'm going to live for him and allow the principles of the kingdom of God to flow through the decisions I make on a day-to-day -day basis. So what do we say as we draw to a close today? Well, the good news of the Gospel of Mark, the only good news, beside which there is no other good news, is that in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God has broken into human history in a way never experienced before. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the anointed of God. In Greek, that means the Christ. And he is also the Son of God. And as such, he bears a divine authority. He has authority over the forces of Satan, over the demonic forces. He has authority over disease. And he has authority over disciples. And how do we respond? Well, the chapter also tells us how do we respond to the arrival of Jesus Christ in our lives? How do we respond? Is it through an intellectual ascent of faith? Well, possibly, but it, as uh, was read in our scripture reading uh, by Sister Veronica, this is how we are to respond. It says there, Mark 1 verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come, repent, and believe in the good news. There are two commands given in this chapter, in this verse, in this teaching of Jesus. In fact, the teaching of Jesus in Mark 1 is almost identical to the teachings of John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God has come. So there are two commands here. The first, there are two verbs, is to repent. Now, um, my, my English just says repent. It doesn't give you any sense of what kind of repentance he's talking about. Uh, there are two kinds of repentance, aorist and present continuous in the Greek. Uh, if it was aorist, that would mean just like a one-off repentance, like I repent today and that's it. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That Jesus uses a present imperative, which means I want you to live in a state of, of ongoing repentance, a state of ongoing day by day seeking to turn away from sin. The response to the gospel is not just a one-off, I repent today and no more. 
The response to the gospel is to live in a daily state of repentance, daily turning away from sin, daily abhorring sin, daily rejecting sin in our lives. It involves a daily listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit, revealing to us our sinful needs, deeds, and our fallen nature, and by grace turning from God, from anything, sorry, that would turn us away from Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So the first response that Jesus is looking for is this, live a life of repentance. Live a life of turning away from sin. Live a life of being open to the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in your heart, not quenching the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit is speaking to you even this morning and saying, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, there's this thing in your life that needs to be turned away from, do not harden your hearts. But listen to the voice of the Spirit. And as you listen to the voice of the Spirit, the voice of the Spirit will become stronger and stronger in your life as you go day by day. So the first command of Jesus is this, live a life of repentance, turning from anything that would keep you from your heavenly Father. And the second command of Jesus, he says, repent. Then he says, and believe. Repentance refers that which we turn from. Belief refers that which we turn to. So we're turning from sin and we're turning to it says, believe in the good news. And the good news is Jesus Christ himself. It is not the story about Jesus. It is to believe in Jesus Christ itself. And this is a verb, which means Jesus is asking us to live a life of turning away from sin. And he's asking us to live a life where we are faithfully representing Jesus and his values on a day-by-day basis. Being a Christian is not a matter of so much of, of intellectual assent. It's a daily reality in our lives. I'm consciously turning away from sin in order that I might be filled with the Spirit of God and might live for Jesus day by day. In every decision I make, every word I utter, every breath I take, I will be living for Jesus Christ. Repentance and belief cannot be applied to some areas of our life and not to others. Jesus is calling for total allegiance in all areas of our lives. And why is that? Well, we see in the story of the leper, Jesus traded place with the leper and he bore the leper's burden. He traded places with leper in Mark chapter 1. And in Mark chapter 15, Jesus traded places with you and me. He died the eternal death that is our due in order that we might have the eternal life that is his to give. He traded places with me. He traded places with you. So the call today is the same as he gave in his first chapter here of Mark to the church of village here in Bering Springs to those watching online. Repent, turn from sin, Seek for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Be opened and sensitive to the Spirit's convictions today and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Live for Jesus in every moment of the day, in every decision you make, in every word you utter, in every job you do. Be the living presence of Jesus because he took your place that we might have his place for eternity. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.